Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, yes, it's me again, Luke Jones, not Matt Chorley. This is the Times Redbox podcast ahead. How to take over a business as Morrison's is in the middle of a massive bidding scuffle. Uh, We'll tell you how to take over your favorite company. First, our columnists, David Finkelstein and David Finkelstein, Danny Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Bit much? <laughs> How have I not heard that before? Um, well, it doesn't really go together with our favourite meals, does it? No, it's... It. I mean, all that kind of snarling and stuff like that and nice kind of Friday evenings with your family. I've always wondered what portmanteau meant. Maybe that's what it means. What's your favourite meal? Yeah. <laughs> um, let us start, uh, you two, with, uh, well, the thing that's on the front of all the pages today. Uh, the situation in uh, in Kabul, Race to Escape Kabul Carnage, is the front page of the Times with a still from that awful video um, where that US Air Force plane is trying to take off and just hundreds of people are um, are crowding around it, trying to cling to the to the bottom of it. Um, there's lots of um, quite angry commentary in the papers today. Um, Danny, what did you think when you saw some of those pictures yesterday, some of the really desperate pictures? Look, it's, it's often been a great theme of, uh, of uh, British politics. You know, there's American, has too much power, the Americans should go home, uh, the Americans shouldn't uh, exercise influence in the world. And the truth is there they are flying out and people are actually clinging on to the aeroplane. I think that was a pretty eloquent image. I mean, mm. it's the whole thing is shameful as far as I'm uh, concerned, but it's but it also illustrates uh, the uh, the value that uh, American power has to some other people who are living in that country. And David, what about you? I'm ashamed, but my shame accomplishes nothing right now. And so, if you're genuinely kind of ashamed, uh, then in that case, the real response is to try and see what you can do about it. Um, clearly, we're into the business of discussing how it is that we can get people out. But I don't think we should just be looking at the short term. I think, unfortunately, we've got to be looking at negotiating with whatever administration the Taliban eventually kind of puts up to try and allow as many people as possible who want to live in conditions of relative liberty to come out of Afghanistan and go to places where they can live like that. And I do think that's part of our responsibility. And if we don't see that as part of our responsibility, then the rest, frankly, is can't. And yeah, you know, David actually just said, to be clear, because I've you know, written in the past, as David knows, about immigration control. I really agree with you about that. Uh, indeed, it's one of the reasons why I think we have to be careful about economic migrancy is that we sometimes need to take action uh, in these kind of circumstances. One of the reasons why I believe in us trying to help countries and people where they live uh, with military action is so that they don't feel driven out of their homes. But exactly. now that we've failed in that respect, we have a moral responsibility. And, uh, and, and I think we need to be 
very generous in our response to it. I wouldn't have wanted to be in this position, but we absolutely are, and we need to respond as if mm. we are. We're awaiting news about what the government is actually going to do in terms of a plan to, to resettle Afghan refugees. Henry Zeffrin from The Times, chief political correspondent, was uh, reporting last night that ministers are preparing a, a distinct scheme like the Syrian refugee resettlement programme that we had in 2015, uh, plans for a direct route under a specific pathway. Um, that's encouraging, David, isn't it? But we don't yet know about numbers. Uh, uh, well, we didn't. I mean, th that was a, a good scheme, but it hardly took any Syrians. I think it was about 20,000 in all. Um, and as we know, uh, a good 800,000 went to Germany. Uh, firstly, we should say this. We're not just talking about ourselves. This has got to be done in concert with other people. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame that the concert is so much more difficult to achieve now than it was, but it's got to be done together with other people. This is not this is not an area for unilateralism, uh, really. Unilateralism just doesn't kind of work here. And the second thing is, it's got to be, given our historic connections with Afghanistan, a much bigger package than we offered to the Syrian refugees. There are many, many more people with an orientation towards the United Kingdom and with links both with us historically and more recently with our armed forces, uh, with our NGOs and with people who've mm. been working in Afghanistan. But uh, Danny, this is the question, isn't it? It's, it's about scale. How far do you actually extend this scheme? Where is the cutoff point? Look, you know, you'd expect someone from a family like mine, which is... Uh, had to flee for its life um, in more than one place uh, to take the view that we have both the responsibility um, not not just established uh, by our strategic interventions in Afghanistan, but also established by our moral responsibility as human beings. And, uh, you know, the fact it, it's certainly not optimal uh, either for people to have to be forced to leave their home, which they want to live in, in the country that they know uh, and become strangers in another land. That's not something they want to do, uh, but it's something that they may have to do. And in those circumstances, we have to respond as the moment suggests and other uh, considerations. I'm afraid become secondary in those circumstances, even though you know they're they're my con they're, they're they're some of my concerns. But um, you know we have to respond um, to to the emergency that's been created. And there's a question, isn't there, about why there's a there's a scramble to sort this out now? Talks reportedly happening through the night on sorting out this scheme. We yeah. just heard from Lord Dannett a few minutes ago, and he was saying that. Central government in August has not been looking at Afghanistan. He talks about how there was a scant mention of Afghanistan in the integrated review. We're getting stories like in the Times today of this Afghan interpreter uh, whose permission to come to Britain has been revoked, uh, telling the Times that his home has now been uh, raided by the Taliban and they've uh, sentenced him to death. Um, why has government, David, actually turned a blind eye in Lord Dannett's view to this for so long? And we've all been asleep. I was just looking at some of this stuff going back to the uh, presidential election um, and then some of the things even before that that Joe Biden had said about Afghanistan and it was all there to be seen if you if you were looking for it but we were looking at other things uh, we were looking in another direction we just didn't imagine we as ever we all think and we always think this and often it's true that the Americans have a plan that they know something uh, and that consequently something like this won't happen in the way it did. And it turns out that they didn't ha really have a plan and they, whatever they thought they knew turned out not to be quite right. It might be right long term, but it certainly wasn't right in the uh, in the short term. But we expected it to be. Mm. So we've all been. Well, I mean, I, not I, mean, I have David, been kind of sorry. Yeah, just just our colleague, William Hague, on our, uh, in his column, he 
did say this would happen, and I admit I'm completely open to admit that before I read it, I've been completely oblivious to this. But about um, six weeks ago, uh, he wrote warning precisely yeah. that this would happen, and I read it and I thought, do you know what? I think that's completely convincing. I assume that there's some sort of response to the points that he's making, but he does seem to me to be, uh, to, to his judgment, does seem to me to be correct. So it was yeah. there to know. Oh no, I no, I completely agree, and I, 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 actually, um, for what it's worth, I was kind of kind of tweeting and so uh, and doing social media posts about this months ago, saying I it, this looks really bad, but I did not conceive that the Americans had not got some kind of big notion in place about it not happening within a week. Yes, and as well, there's a question of how much of this is. Um, sublettered to US forces. Tom Tugendhat, I think it was when I was on Drive last week on the Thursday or Friday, was saying that some aspects of UK foreign policy at the moment are God bless America. Is that fair, David? Well, America is the essential ally. It's the superpower. It's, you know, 1941 and the the arsenal of democracy. Um, If you're going to have any really substantial international fight, um, that in that case you want to have the Americans on your side, and it's a and it's a very difficult position we're in. We're both at the same time significantly dependent uh, upon America, uh, and also reluctant to try and create forces which would release us from that degree of dependency. And so the actual real position is that we need to take America with us, and we need to be taken with America. But that has really substantial costs and problems associated with it. And if you don't want to do that, then in that case, you've got to look at what your alternatives are. And by and large, we've not embraced the alternatives like massive builds up of our own forces or the possibility of a significant European dimension. And why isn't there some kind of honesty, Danny, about this from from our government? I mean, I think we got close to it with Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, the other day in tears saying, you know, this has happened because the West has done what it's done. But... But they still seem quite cautious of calling out US decisions which they don't necessarily feel comfortable with. Well, it's difficult because we are quite dependent on the relationship. Um, and, you know, I've been concerned for a while, I've been writing for a while about the fact that America has been retreating and that we are not a, that we're in a sort of post uh, Pax Americana world. And I said that I thought it was quite possible that after Pax Americana, there wouldn't be any Pax. Uh, and um, that's what's happening. Um, and we have to understand the consequence of that. I mean, I, you know, this is what I'm thinking of writing about today. David will, will uh, David and I share a sort of liberal internationalist instinct. And what this illustrates is that the commitment required to to support that um, is simply from Britain and not just from other allies is simply greater than we, you know, both in public support and financially than I think we had anticipated. And we either, you know, accept that or we don't pursue that policy. And at the moment we've been retreating from that policy and everybody who's retreated from that policy, every single person who's listening to that programme who has supported that policy of uh, retreat is responsible for what's happened. This is not something that happened out of the blue. America withdrew as a result of 15 to 20 years of withdrawal type rhetoric supported on right and on left that America should not be the world's policeman and you cannot when you say that America should not be the world's policeman when it stops being the world's policeman and someone breaks into the house and starts murdering the occupants because there's no police you can't 
say, where's the police, right? Because you said they shouldn't be the world's policemen. Uh, and I've always thought they should be the world's policemen. And I feel chagrined and angry um, that, that they've decided against that role, that we're not supporting them in that role. Uh, but nobody who thinks that they shouldn't play that role has got any right to be at cross with what's happening in Afghanistan because it's what you wanted. David, I wonder what you think should happen now in terms of... Uh, you mentioned having to talk to the Taliban in some instance, but we, we're constantly hearing the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, in fact, just a few minutes ago, read out from Downing Street about his conversation with Angela Merkel about telling the Taliban to protect human rights and the rights of women and, and girls' education. Um, but it's just words, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, but on the other hand, it's it, 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 if you like, it's the kind of minimum that you absolutely have to do. Uh, we have to make the assumption, we have to operate on the assumption that the Taliban, new government, whatever administration it is, will want some kind of contact with the outside world. We need some kind of help. After all, taxing people to pay for your weapons is not exactly the same as taxing people to pay for your infrastructure and mm. for your economy and so on. And there is some suggestion that some of the leading members of the Taliban in places like Doha and also Pakistan have become quite substantial business operators in their own right with a kind of interest in the economy. So the horrible truth is that they may actually have a vested interest in some sort of way in having at least some kind of active relationship with the mm. West. And that is your sole lever, practically. I mean, obviously, they know that if, if Al-Qaeda uh, launches attacks from uh, Afghan territory, then in that case, they're going to be pit again. And America does have the capacity to do that and does have the will to do that without actually losing very many um, mm. uh, soldiers as a, as a consequence. So, yes, we are going to have to use pressure and persuasion to get people out and to try and get them to behave better than they would otherwise behave. I don't hold out much hope, though. I mean, I honestly don't on that latter score. It doesn't seem to me from reports we've been hearing that they're very much in control of what's actually happening in towns and villages uh, around Afghanistan. And in terms of the uh, the politics within the Taliban, a little bit later on, we're going to hear from the director of the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation at King's College London on exactly how they operate and what the power structures and strategies are uh, within the Taliban. Um, we started with meals, both of you. Uh, I'm going to end with a drink, if that's OK. Boris Johnson said that he's, <laughs> um, he's off the source until his uh, new baby is born in solidarity with his wife, uh, Carrie Johnson. Um, have you either of you tried any of this, a kind of dry January, not drinking through the week, Danny? If you put all of the contents of everything I've ever, of every alcohol I've ever drunk in my life into a pint glass, it wouldn't reach the rim. So yes, um, <laughs> I, I'm I'm afraid I'd, I'm not the best person to ask because I don't drink at all, not for no um, reason to do with uh, solidarity with anyone. I just don't really like it. It's a sort of slightly, I think, possibly a symbol of immaturity. I don't like coffee either, but uh, but no, I've never liked it very much. So I, just, I don't I, get it completely. <laughs> I just take it as an admission that he's got an alcohol problem. I'm not even joking. Um, I think that if you have to say to yourself, I need to stop for a while, then the question is, why do you need to stop? Why can't you just have enough of this thing for it not to require you as to as stop? A brief, as a brief health kick? If it's unhealthy for you, why do it? I mean, I don't say yeah. to myself, I'm going to have a thin January because I lo and then but it's going to be great to be fat the rest. I, I, dislike, <laughs> I, dislike, I dislike being overweight all the year round. Yes, 
So, but but you, so you're saying you haven't tried that at any point, David? You haven't said, okay, I'm I'm not going to drink during the week, or I'm going to. I would stay... I would ha- I would have that. It would be completely redundant in my case. Uh, I like one glass of red wine, possibly at an extremist two once a week. What would I be stopping? Yes. Um, very finely. Sorry, I can just uh, listeners at home can't see both of you, but I've got you on a, on a screen here. I can see both of you sitting in your respective studies. Um, David, for Christmas or maybe some kind of um, autumn sort of uh, fundraiser, shall we buy Danny Finkelstein some shelves? Oh, can I just point out we're having <laughs> Honestly, we're having a house painted. Can, <laughs> we're there having are a house stacks painted. and stacks of books. Yes. Because the house is being painted and the books have been taken off the shelf and printed. So the, the, the books behind me are here on purpose because they're research material for the book that I'm writing. And the books on the other side are taken off the shelf in the lounge, which is being painted uh, grey, as you asked. Uh, I'm scared for your in the kitchen and malted chocolate in the bedroom. You think he should have a shelving September, do you? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> that was David Finkelstein and Danny Aronovich. Now, have you got millions, maybe billions to spare? Here's how you take over a company. The minute you walked in the joint I could see you were a man of distinction A real big spender How? To buy a business. Is it all about the dosh? As Morrison's flirts with multiple bidders, uh, we're going to be delving into the tricky takeover. In a moment, we'll hear from uh, Hugh Osmond, who founded Pizza Express, John Cordwell, who founded Phones for You, and uh, Luke Johnson, uh, an entrepreneur, currently chair of uh, Risk Capital Partners, who's been, been involved with lots of these. Uh, we'll hear from them a little bit later on. First, our expert guide in all of this, Ashley Armstrong, retail editor at The Times. Ashley, good morning. Hi, morning. That was a jazzy intro. <laughs> just, just for you. Um, first of all, um, update us with the Morrisons situation, because this is a good place to start, isn't it? And the way mm. that these things can, well, is drag out the right word? I, yeah, drag out, I think, is, is, is fair enough in this situation. So we've been um, publicly, Morrisons has been under siege for two months. We first knew that Clayton de Billion Rice had made an approach for them in mid-June. What was actually going on behind the scenes was there was another buyout firm called Fortress, who was also in takeover talks. Um, And so there's been uh, a competition between them. Fortress has made uh, two offers now. It improved its offer, even though uh, Clayton, Dibley and Rice or CDNR didn't make an effort. And now we've got a Friday deadline for CDNR to trump the Fortress bid, which has already got the blessing from Morrison's directors. So it really is... um, you know, kind of show their money or mm. walk away time now. And what is happening, do we think, behind the scenes uh, as this uh, ticking clock counts down? Is there lots of uh, wrangling amongst, I guess, the, the board of Morrisons in terms of various people who are actually putting together these bids? Mm. Yeah, well, I think I think most of the, the, the tension, as it were, would have probably been done um, before... Uh, we had the approval or the recommendation from Fortress because they made like five offers before they made their first public one. And, you know, Morrison's is a supermarket which has got 85% freehold of its assets. Um, you know, it owns its manufacturing sites. It proved its worth during the pandemic. And yet the stock market has really um, undervalued it. It's been mm. unloved because investors just can't see how there's a way to grow. You know, supermarkets operate on really low margins. 
and there's been much more attractive assets out there for institutional investors. So it really kind of puts the point of how much is Morrison's worth. And to give you an idea, so for the last five years, Morrison's has been trading around 170, 180p. Now we're thinking that CDNR could come back with a 280p offer. So, you know, there's a a big bump involved. Mm. And yet um, when when Fortress was offering 254p, which is obviously a considerable premium to what the shares had been, investors were saying, no, that's not enough, that's undervaluing it, and Morrison's directors could be generating a lot more money. And the supermarket um, takeover tussle has really pushed into the spotlight, you know, this kind of whole idea of where value is. And and if public markets don't value an asset, then private equity or, or private money certainly will sniff out cheap assets and cheap value. And that's why we're seeing this mm. huge wave of takeovers going on at the moment. And in terms of takeovers more broadly, why... Why is there so much secrecy? Well, um, in, in terms of in terms of kind of what's happening, well, because as soon as as soon as there's takeover interest known, like you know, that's why people are always very careful about leaks, and you know, the takeover panel has now got you know big punitive um, pressures to to stop leaks from happening. Um, then the share price goes up, and also, I mean, you know, there's been criticism of maybe why didn't Morrison's let investors know that there was all this takeover interest in them before agreeing to a deal because they were had been accused of rolling over and accepting an offer too quickly. Well, there, there's this whole concept of being under siege. So actually, you know, if a company says that they're, says as soon as that somebody comes along and knocks on the door that they're, um, they've got an offer or takeover interest, then then they're kind of in, in somebody else's hands constantly. Uh, their, their fortune is, is you know, dictated by whether this takeover mm. offer comes. And it's incredibly disruptive to businesses, and particularly those that employ you know, hundreds of thousands of staff, because they're wondering, well, if somebody comes along, will I have a job in a couple of months? Will my job be mm. safe? And, and it means that you know, suppliers kind of hold off doing deals. So you know, the, the ripple effects of uh, a takeover really are why... Um, why secrecy is, yeah. is so important, but why as journalists we always like knowing what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of what you've seen and what you've reported on over the years, what give an example of a particularly spicy or, or complicated takeover. Um, well, I mean, just uh, almost in the in the same sector as it were. You know, Sainsbury's Asda was obviously a big deal and a big deal that wasn't. Um, you know, and that was definitely one of those situations where. Um, maybe the the supermarkets really were too confident in thinking that they could merge the second and third largest grocers. I'm not quite sure why everybody had said it was going to be impossible, but <laughs> they believed it was. Um, and then you also had, obviously, the Unilever um, situation with Kraft Heinz, which was another amazing, very short-lived deal that wasn't, um, uh, because you know Unilever was able to say, you know, these ugly... Americans in Brazilian outfit, they'll slash and burn our, our company and, you know, destroy all our ethical principles. And it worked, you know. Um, and we had a similar situation with Pfizer AstraZeneca as well. So, yeah, it's always the deals that weren't have almost been as interesting as the, the big deals mm. that have happened. And amidst all of this, of course, we've got uh, shareholders in the middle of mm. this. Um, yeah. How... If, if if I am am the uh, entrepreneur with uh, hundreds of millions of pounds in my back pocket and I'm trying to mm. buy a big name on the high street, how worried do I need to be about shareholders? And is that worry increasing over the over the past few years? Well, if you if you if you're trying to buy a high street business, I would say there's not many left 
<laughs> well, yeah, good point. Um, yeah, bad so, example. So, you, you know, there's um, and, and the ones that are are probably quite quite expensive. I and mean, you know, you've got the likes of Next, and I suppose Fraser's Group um, is basically owned by my my cashier majority and JD Sports. You know, that's just like uh, mm. is also um, largely owned by the Pentland Group. Um, if you're if you're talking about kind of you know another uh, listed business um, for for shareholders, I mean. What we've seen, particularly in the Morrison situation, and you're, and you're seeing going playing out with other deals, is that you know institutional investors have been talking this game for a while about you know considering wider stakeholders and they like sustainable investments. At the end of the day, it really does come down to their fiduciary duty to their investors, and so they will always take the highest price. And mm. you know they they might hold off and not want to deal, but that's because they think that there'll be a better financial return. It's very hard for an investor to say no to money today, um, and that's that's part of the problem that boards have as well when they're trying to rebuff a deal that, because they might want to stay independent. They have to consider the shareholder interests almost above and beyond their wider stakeholders as much as they 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 have to because the thing is is that wider stakeholders it's quite difficult for them to pursue mm. it, but actually shareholders can sue boards for. for for not um, for not you know kind of thinking of their best interests and and blindly turning away a deal mm. um, that could you know could Richard actually we had this similar situation with Premier Foods a while ago um, they rebuffed this takeover approach that it was never a full bid but from a US suitor and did a side deal with a, a Japanese firm selling a stake to him. And it infuriated shareholders so much that for the next four years they were subject to activist shareholder campaigns. I mean, investors investors hate it if if uh, boards. It's a real it's a real difficult um, balance for them to strike mm. because they'll hate it if it's if um, they haven't given due consideration to a takeover offer, and investors also hate it if there's the idea of selling too yeah. cheap. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Very, very, very finally, uh, Ashley, um, mm. Breakfast are doing this thing where they're giving sort of policymakers uh, an imaginary billion pounds to sort of see what's, uh, what good they do in their field. I- I'm going to give you a billion pounds in a sort of fancy <laughs> way now. Um, what are you buying? Oh, wow. Um, Business-wise. Business-wise, yeah. okay. Um, well, if I, if I had a billion pounds, this is very interesting, but I think a billion pounds, well, you couldn't buy a listed business for, I'd say, a listed business that is worth it for a billion pounds right now you'd probably buy a stake so i think i would probably go down the line of um venture capitalism because that seems to be where you can also make a lot of money these days and probably do um you know buy some of these high street brands or some of these unloved brands or these consumery brands these days and build up a little uh stable um and then i'd probably rebrand it as a tech business because i'd sell online and have some logistics and if you can rebrand anything as a technology platform, you know, you can at least kind of, you know, add a huge multiple to your price. So, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd make I'd make my money back by by trying to set up a tech platform, I think. That was a very good answer. Very detailed. You've been thinking about that. <laughs> no, I haven't. But, but, but maybe I will. If you've got a spare billion, I'll, yeah. I'll take it. Well, if anyone's yeah. listening has got a spare billion, uh, do throw <laughs> some Ashley's way. Um, Ashley, thank you so much for your time. That's Ashley Armstrong, who yeah. is a retail editor at the time. Let's hear from people who've actually been involved in this kind of thing. Uh, Hugh Osmond uh, founded Pizza Express. John Cordwell founded Phones for You. And Luke Johnson is an entrepreneur who's currently chair of Risk Capital Partners. Obviously been involved in a number of restaurant and food chains. Uh, welcome all. 
Ah, no one's there. <laughs> You're looking for a reaction, yes. Hi. Hello. Thank you all so much for making time for us. I appreciate it. Um, Hugh, can I start with you? In terms of Pizza Express, um, take us through some of the, the buying and selling and, uh, and the shenanigans that went on there in your time. Well, as you know, um, Luke and I actually did that together, mm. um, what seems like an awful long time ago now. Actually, it only seems like yesterday, but that was in uh, 92, 93. Mm. And uh, I think, you know, that that was an example, which in a way is the is the best. And uh, although, you know, there was a lot of work, the easiest example where you have essentially a very, very good company. And um, by freeing it from its shackles, uh, it can blossom. And uh, although I, I would like to think that Luke and I had considerable input into that, it was, in essence, uh, an outstanding company to start with. And, and we could simply, by um, you know, providing it with extra funding and extra freedom and extra resources, yeah, allow this uh, sort of very, you know, very solid company that was trying to get out um, blossom. And uh, it was also it was a very favorable market. It was a very good company. It was a very good brand. And we backed the people and the management. And hence, it, it went very well. Um, many takeovers don't go that well as um mm. luke and i can both vouch for and i'm sure john as well and uh, luke in terms of uh the pizza express experience um was it always about price it was interesting what uh ashley was saying there about actually whatever sort of assurances are given in terms of how the business is going to run actually shareholders quite often are just going for um the highest bidder is that fair in your experience well, we you and i Luke, we can barely hear you, I'm afraid. Um, maybe could you edge just a little closer to your microphone? You sound like you're at the end of a very long corridor. How's that? Is that better? Yes, much better. Thank you. Sorry, as you were. Okay. So, um, it was a private business. Uh, we took control of it from the founders and uh, took it public. And... Um, as Hugh said, it was quite small when we first got involved and we grew it organically. And that's really what added the value and made the difference. And in hindsight, the price we paid was almost irrelevant because of the growth it enjoyed. And so it was a good example of how you can pay up in the beginning if you've got a good enough business and the climate is right. And Hugh... Tell us about your experience. Uh, sorry, not Hugh. Sorry, John. Getting confused between you all. Um, John, God, tell us about your experience first of all in terms of uh, founding phones for you, and then when it came to the point where you sold. Tell us about that experience of um, of hearing from different bidders and uh, and what your experience of that was. Yeah, well, I, th- I think first of all, uh, I think Hugh mentioned about. Uh, uh, acquisitions and uh, you know the whole world is full of chief executives who think that two plus two is going to equal five and they find out uh, much to their demise that two plus two often equals three so acquisitions and mergers have got to be very very carefully and thoughtfully done because you will often end up with completely diverse cultures that are a nightmare to knit together a whole range of problems and that uh, economy of scale that you think that you might be building and taking cost out of the business ends of actually being the reverse and you've maybe put 12 months of your life into making it happen. But that wasn't the question you asked me, so I will answer that as well, which uh, which was on the sale process. I was dealing with one of the shrewdest uh, 
negotiators on the planet, really, with Vodafone. They had a very, very simple strategy of starving their uh, their associates out of business or making things difficult for them in order to buy the business cheaply. Uh, and I knew exactly what they were going to do with me. And uh, I actually gave them a nuclear button scenario whereby if they screwed me over or tried to, the nuclear button would be pressed, which would be extremely damaging for me, but extremely damaging for them in the hope that uh, they would play reasonably fair. Um, and that ultimately is what happened. And uh, Vodafone actually got a real uh, bargain when they bought Single Point because they bought such a great business that they relocated a lot of their services into my business in Stoke-on-Trent. So that sort of worked out well for both parties. But it's a battle. It's a battlefield out there, you know, and especially if you're dealing with a big shrewd player who uh, who's uh, played the game many times and knows how to manipulate. And when I sold the whole business, I had real the same tough fights all over again with uh, private equity. Ended up selling uh, to uh, in two parts, one was to provident private equity, and uh, the other, the other, the other one was the uh, the distribution business, uh, which was uh, doughty, and that went badly for them, unfortunately. But um, whereas Providence consulted me on the way to knit the business in and make it work and motivate the management team, doughty has decided not to, and I think that was part of their demise. And I'm interested in. Uh how things have maybe changed over the years. Um, you were talking about you and Luke Johnson's um, buying uh, Peter Express in what we, we said it was 92, 93. Um, how much has the process changed, do you think, have you observed over the years in terms of not just um, the publicity around these kind of things, but also the way that um, shareholders maybe have, uh, have become a bit more active as well, would you say? Well, I, I think the process has m- moved on. You know, the rules and regulations around public company takeovers are, are very strict. And contrary, perhaps, to the narrative, they're incredibly favourable to the the vendors. The vendors get, you know, every possible chance um, for uh, the best bidder to come forward. And, uh, you know, the, the, the bidders have to follow a very strict set, set of rules as I say there is a very clear clear period where other bidders get the chance to come in there's very little ability to tie deals up so in, if you're a shareholder in a public company and it gets bid for you can be absolutely certain or pretty much certain that every bidder who might be out there will get a good chance to look they will have the rights to all the same information as mm. other bidders get and um, the, the days of the, the kind of Wild West in, in the public companies of bidding here or there are pretty much over. I, I'm not sure that always uh, is best for British business as a whole, because I think it enables some rather second rate management quite often to get, you know, to get away with it and, and, mm. and not get taken over simply because of the process. But um, that has definitely moved on. And even with private companies, I think things have moved on a lot in that there's far less ability to do deals by private, you know, one-on-one negotiation. Far more is done even with quite small businesses by auction. Mm. Um, again, you know, that, that's good in some ways and it maybe enables the vendors to be sure they got a fair price. 
But I think sometimes in terms of who the right bidder is and the communication that John just referred to about whether you've got a bidder who's really interacting well with the vendor and with the existing shareholders, yeah. it's not always right for the business. I'm interested in, in all of your experiences as, um, uh, well, most of you in terms of being uh, buyers. Luke Johnson, obviously, you're long associated with, with, with buying lots of businesses. I'm thinking of uh, you know, Feng Sushi, um, the company that runs Gales and the rest. Um, Tell us about your experience of that, and um, and I guess what we're after is sort of some of the um, the behind the scenes uh, secret of drama that happens that maybe doesn't make it uh, into the newspapers onto the television screens. Uh, well, in my experience, every deal is full of thrills and spills because, uh, despite what people think, there is a great deal of emotion involved always, uh, and there are often. Uh, last minute hitches and hiccups and uh, confrontations and um, you know while those fields develop a momentum that means they finally get closed there will always be uh, a lot of tension before that happens uh, that obviously never makes it to the uh, to the media but if you are involved then it's it's a stressful business and uh, quite often you will Imagine that either the deal doesn't happen or you're out big or that the bidder pulls out or the financing doesn't come through. Uh, and, um, you know, these are, these are unusual times because people have spent this money out there. And with incredibly low interest rates and governments printing money everywhere, it, I think this autumn will be perhaps the busiest few months ever in takeover terms because I think there are going to be a great deal of bids because of all this liquidity across the world. Mm. And uh, Hugh, just, just to go back to you, I'm interested. Um, what's happening with you and Homebase? It was reported a while ago that you, that you were eyeing up uh, buying Homebase. Uh, maybe that, and also your experience of, of trying to buy things. And, and do you agree with um, Luke's point there about this autumn is, is maybe necessarily the, the time to do it? Yeah, in the case of Homebase, I mean, we, we simply didn't uh, reach agreement on, on price. Um, we felt it was too uncertain as to how much of the uh, incredible boom in sales was as a result of um, specific lockdown factors where Homebase was open when many other people were closed. And understandably, the owners felt that was sustainable, so we couldn't reach agreement on price. I agree with Luke. I mean, I, I think it, it's not a very sexy subject but it's incredibly important the amount of liquidity that's been pumped in all around the world but particularly starting the us is absolutely staggering and and you know the the kind of real interest rates and hence uh, cost of debt and money available to investors is the lowest you know by far it's ever been in in our lifetimes and this money swishing around all over the place looking for a home uh you know will have all sorts of consequences which um uh, you know, I, I, I can't possibly forecast and neither can any economist either. Um, so, you know, it could be incredibly busy because money is available mm. everywhere. Some good deals will be done. Some terrible deals will be done. But, um, yeah, it could be uh, it, it could be very, very busy. This cheap money, I suspect, eventually will end badly. But how long the party mm. goes on before it does, anybody's guess.
Um, John Cordwell, I'll end with you. Um, we were hearing from Ashley Armstrong from the Times minute ago. I gave her, I gave her a fantasy billion pounds uh, to buy something in this uh, autumn uh, acquisition spree, which may be upon us. Um, I'm giving you a, a fancy. Well, you've got your own billion, but I'm giving you a fancy one as well. Um, what's um, what's taking your fancy? Well, I mean, firstly, I've always been an organic grower. I don't like buying other businesses. It would have to be something very, very special uh, for me to want to uh, buy from scratch. Uh, sorry, from uh, from mm. an existing business. So, but if it were, it would have to be something that was globalised. So it would have to be internet-based. It would have to be in its infancy, but but proven. And I'd have to be able to see that it could be mass market and a globalised business. Uh, other than that, I would never invest in another in, a, in another business on a significant scale. Of course, I'm an investor in small in a small way as uh, small shareholdings of one, two, or three percent. But uh, but they have to be capable of being globalized so that the upside is enormous. Mm. Even if risk is quite big as well, the upside makes it really worth going for. Good to talk to you all this morning. Thank you so much for making time for us. Uh, John Cordwell there, who, of course, uh, founded Phones for You back in the day. We also heard from Luke Johnson, um, entrepreneur, currently chair of Risk Capital Partners, and also Hugh Osmond, uh, with whom uh, Luke Johnson bought uh, Pizza Express uh, way back in the early 90s as well. And there we go. That's all we've got time for. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, do download the podcast again tomorrow. We will be taking a trip around disunited Afghanistan in a departure from our usual fare. Um, liking and subscribing and all that helps. I'm at Luke Jones. 03 on Twitter. See you tomorrow.